Corrado opened the subject up of me and mine last evening. I'd like to continue that. It's about freedom from selfing. I like the term selfing because it's a verb. And to me, it's more accurate when we talk about the self or not self. Sometimes it conveys much too massive a picture, kind of either abstract or finally, it really is something permanent. The self doesn't exist or not, it doesn't exist in the way we think it does. What I'm attempting to convey in, t- in terms of selfing is that this process of attaching to things as being me or mine is something that we do moment. And it's also something that we don't do from moment to moment. It comes and it goes. And what I hope I can accomplish at least a little bit tonight is to bring this whole issue of emptiness as will be used here, a little down to earth um, so that it's helpful, helpful in our actual practice. As I mentioned, uh, I've been, uh, I wanted to use these talks personally for myself, to show some gratitude to Ajahn Buddhadasa, who died. And he was one of the clearest thinkers and writers on this subject. He uses the term emptiness, which is rare among Theravadan teachers. In fact, at the beginning, he even got some flack from some of the senior monks uh, in Thailand, accusing him of being Mahayana, Um, And if you read his writings carefully and if you listen to his teachings, uh, he very convincingly demonstrates there's nothing new about emptiness, that it's in the Buddha, the original teachings of the Buddha, and that in fact it's the supreme teaching of the Buddha. What I hope we can do tonight is just scratch the surface because it's a, a very subtle and profound subject with endless curves in it ramifications. I'm going to try to make it as simple and as concrete as I, as I know how to do, or begin to do that tonight. For a teaching to be consistent with the teachings of the Buddha, whatever those teachings are, whatever those methods are, they should take us in the direction that leads away from suffering. If we have methods and approaches and teachings that don't do that, it's probably what the Buddha, it's not what the Buddha had in mind. Also, we ought to be able to test it ourselves. It's not something that we should just take uh, in terms of hearsay. It's not to subscribe to a belief and then feel the confidence that can come from being a believer. So even a notion like emptiness 
uh, has to be explicated, has to be developed, has to be made clear enough so that you can look into your actual mind and your actual life and your actual situations and see for yourself if what's being said is true. Otherwise, it's not of much value. It's really very, very practical. Um, in a very famous teaching, the Buddha picks up a handful of leaves and he shows it to the monks and says, are there more leaves in my hand or in this entire forest that they were in, a very large forest? And of course they say, uh, there are more leaves in the forest, much more. And he said, what I know is like the leaves in the entire forest. But what I teach is really just enough, a handful of leaves. What I teach is all you need to know to eradicate suffering. There are many things to know, many things to learn. Fascinating, wonderful, helpful. But he seemed to be on one track to recognize and eliminate suffering. This brings us to our subject because, again, once he was asked, could he sum up the essence of his teaching in just one phrase? And he said, under no conditions cling to anything whatsoever. If you understand this not grasping or clinging to anything whatsoever, then you've understood the whole teaching of the Buddha. If you put it into practice, you've put the entire teaching of the Buddha into practice. If you attain fruit from this teaching, from this understanding, this short phrase, then you've attained all the fruit that's possible to attain from the teachings of the Buddha. Under no conditions, grasp on to anything whatsoever. To clarify that a little bit, what that means is under no conditions attached to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. It's a very brief, concentrated statement. And so many of the different schemes that we hear, uh, read about in books and hear in these halls, here in this hall, are different ways of saying the same thing. Finally, uh, it all comes down to that. That's uh, what I'd like to begin to try to suggest tonight. What is being suggested is that there is a, a spiritual disease in addition to physical and mental diseases that humans have always had. It seems pretty strong during our time. The disease is the flip side of that statement that is attaching to this, that, and the other as being me or mine. And it's that which blocks the letting go and the eradication of suffering. We call it ignorance when we see things as, as, as being me or belonging to me. I think to try to make this as concrete as possible uh, and also to exemplify 
that the only way to really deal, uh, to really deal with this subject of emptiness uh, is you have to begin to understand that you have this spiritual sickness. I'm speaking in general, maybe some of you don't. Generosity is a spiritual quality. <laughs> but between you and me. <laughs> okay. We wouldn't be here, right, if we were... So we have to recognize it before we'll uh, do anything about it. And most often, this is such a fundamental problem that it's not seen. It's not seen at all, even among people who sincerely believe that they're practicing. So step number one is to see it, and we, and we have to see it in our own heart. It's no good to hear the words and agree with them, or to recognize the truth by looking around and seeing evidence wherever you look that this is so. That's useful, it has some place. But finally, it has to come back to each one of us, and we have to see this uh, as really true if it is. And if so, to begin healing ourselves. So the fundamental disease is ignorance, which leads to greed, hatred. Delusion is, this, I'm using that the same as ignorance, greed and hatred. And what is that? Where do greed and hatred come from? Don't they grow out of the soil of me? I mean, if there were, isn't it a, another way of saying the same thing? Is it some empty blank space that is greedy? Something wants something for something, for someone or wants to own something for someone. Legally, these things exist. I remember once, many years ago, walking in the woods for hours. I got lost, a couple of friends we were. And finally we came upon a very, after hours of walking, this very beautiful wooded area sign that says, are you aware that you are on the property of American Telephone and Telegraph? <laughs> Uh, we just rolled on the ground laughing because <laughs> it is true, but it isn't true. I mean, uh, they don't own that woods. It's not really their woods, but they do think they, that they do. And they have uh, the, the means to enforce that thought. Okay, and it, it's fine with me, but... You know. <laughs> <laughs> What I hope we can accomplish is to begin to see that, uh, that emptiness is a very useful notion and that it becomes even more useful if we're willing to translate it into our actual lives by seeing if this is really so. And I'd like to give you a few examples from my own life. One um, fairly dramatic one, I would say a turning point in my life very clearly, and the other few just little ones, but all illustrating the same purpose. At least one, I'm not sure if it's necessary to go into the others. I want to try to make what I'm saying very concrete. Some years ago, uh, when I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago, uh, I was finishing up my PhD and had the possibility of my first job being a position at Harvard. 
Harvard University. You need to know a little bit of background. I won't bore you with too much, but I come from a working class background. Um, I grew up in Coney Island, where high school is five minutes away from the parachute jump, and for us, lunch break just meant going on the parachute jump. Or um, It was an urban slum, no question about it. My parents were immigrants. It's necessary for you to know this to understand what I'm about to say. Otherwise, I wouldn't inflict my, my biography on you. <laughs> and so if you can understand that, that coming from that background, and I was very fortunate, I had to have two parents who loved me, and I was okay at sports and okay at school. Despite that, if you grow up in an urban slum, and I assume it's the same today, there's something that sticks to you. If you walk outside of it and you go into something that's perhaps just lower middle class or middle class, it feels like, whoa, these people are really Americans. And you feel as if you've just crawled out of someplace, out of some swamp. Even if your mother has dressed you up in a nice white outfit and your hair is nicely combed and you've taken a shower, at some level you don't, you don't feel right. You don't feel as if you're really right. If you're an immigrant, if you're an immigrant background, it's of course accentuated. So after, to make a long story short, there comes a point where I'm, um, I, was, I went for a bunch of interviews at Harvard and then I'm waiting to find out if I was acceptable or not. And it took about two or three months. If I had one millionth of the energy today and for the last years that I've been practicing, for the energy that I had to run out and wait for the mailman to arrive every day, <laughs> I would be way beyond the Buddha. I mean, <laughs> and I'd be able to bring you all along with me. No problem. I was really interested in finding out what would be in that letter when it arrived. One day it did arrive, and they said yes, and I got the job. And so I went to Cambridge. And I was there, at, and at first, of course, was my expectation, this is all in retrospect, when I was going through it, I was much too lost, deluded, and confused, drowning in my own dream world to know what I'm, I'm talking about. This is only clear after a number of years of intense suffering. So what started out to be, and what could and should have been the happiest time in my life, certainly one of the happiest times in my life, a single bachelor, first job at Harvard University, my own apartment, Cambridge, very far from the parachute jump. Uh, and at first it was, uh, mainly living on the high that comes from being confirmed and accepted uh, and being part of a, a community that I had in my mind turned into something extraordinary. Now, Harvard is a great university. Today I'm much more balanced. It's a fine place, actually. But at that point, I had made it into something that as soon as I would walk in the door, I would immediately be transformed from a jerk into someone wonderful. <laughs> but you know what? It never happened. I, remained <laughs> I kept being a jerk, only I had a tweed jacket. That's all. It's the only difference. And after the first few months, which were very exciting for me, there's so many new things and just the thrill of being viewed by people a certain way and me imagining what they thought I was. 
<laughs> I would call this selfing. In other words, constructing a notion as to who you are. And using the materials of Harvard University as building blocks to help construct this notion. In the Buddhist teaching, by the way, this part is not emphasized, certainly not in Theravadan Buddhism, in Mahayana more. Not only are persons empty, but phenomena are empty. So that, that Harvard University is empty. What that means is not that it doesn't exist or that it's a bad place, but that it, is, it lacks intrinsic meaning. Now, many of the people who go there probably would not agree with that. But in a, <laughs> but in a profound way, once there was no Harvard University, it's a historical coming together of conditions, John Harvard, etc., etc., and suddenly you have a place. And at some point in the future, of course, there will not be a Harvard University. It's something that's been put together, so it will come apart. But selfing also applies to that. If you create, make Harvard into something that has inherent meaning, really has a core, it's autonomous, it exists from its own side, then you're the guy who just became part of this extraordinary place. And so then it feeds back and strengthens what you're already working on, which is constructing some uh, wonderful notion as to who you are. At any rate, it didn't take too long before the whole thing fell apart. And I, depression is not something I've spent a lot of time with, but I got depressed day after day, week after week, and it went on for quite a long time. The depression was simple. At a certain point, it became completely apparent that Harvard was a place populated by human beings and that I, was a, that I was a jerk still, I was the same person, and that uh, having that stationary and when you go to a party and someone says, what do you do? I teach at Harvard. That's okay for a while. But then finally, it really starts to fade. And what you're left with, uh, and particularly you start to meet people at Harvard who are, they're people like anywhere else. Some of them extremely intelligent, some of them extremely vain like everyone else, tall ones, short ones, heavy ones, underweight, overweight, old, young, men, women, some hard to be with, some very kind and generous. You know, it's a human situation. And as the reality poured in and the fantasy just couldn't hold. And what I was left with was whoever I was to come there in the first place. And uh, it became very, very depressing. So I went from creating selfing in a very beautiful way to that being uh, disintegrating and becoming something else very negative, uh, despondent, because I had pinned so much on coming to this place. I had worked so hard to get my degree to be the kind of person that would be considered and then to finally get accepted. Uh, and then what happened was all of that didn't magically transform me. Not at all. There I was, again. And uh, it went through many phases of, you know, blaming, really putting Harvard down, and, and all these people, some are not even so bright, you know, and all this kind of stuff, the most vain people I've ever met in my life, and uh, the architecture isn't even all that great. And <laughs> And I would say it was a, a couple of years of suffering inside and on the outside I was uh, superficially a successful, you know, young, uh, promising assistant professor. 
And fortunately, I mean, it got me to do something I hadn't done enough of. And that was to realize that it doesn't come from outside. Uh, I was fortunate to start there because if Harvard's not going to do it for you, that is, if going to a school like that is not going to magically transform me and eradicate all those years of growing up in Brooklyn and the parachute jump, you know, as if that never happened and make me into, I don't know what, a real American. If Harvard's not going to do it, how is Arkansas Evening Extension Branch, <laughs> which is where I was going to go next, how is that going to do it for me? Or some other, you know, good school, but not quite in that, because most people don't stay on. It wouldn't be able to. This couldn't do it, nothing. So now I realized, I see, it's hopeless. <laughs> because I already was at the top, and it's not the top. And so the despair was that. And until finally, it got me to turn in a very different direction. It got me to, to understand that uh, the landscape was barren. I just felt like, what's the point of trying to get anything? Because it, it isn't really, it can't do what I thought it could do. Because when you grow up in communities like the one I grew up in, you're given the American dream, and I'm not trying to debunk that, honestly and truly. But certainly part of that is if you work hard, uh, you can improve your life and, and so forth. And there is some truth to that, of course. But it's, so much of it has to do with externals, to acquiring this, that, and the other, a particular job, objects, and so forth. Well, when that fell apart, where was I? I was trapped. And I began to see inside, and I began to see different notions about myself that couldn't be, they could be painted over by some external situation. But underneath was still something that had not been examined, had not been accepted. And that kind of selfing was destructive. In those moments, it wasn't, it wasn't much fun to be who it was that I thought I was. And then it cleared. It was about the time that I met uh, Krishnamurti, who was an enormous help. Um, in fact, he was part of the turning point. Uh, it's another, I'm not, not so necessary to go into that. But what it got me to do was to, to look inside and understand that if, if I didn't start to uh, correct my life, and it was happiness was, in, was my responsibility. It was in my hands. The ball is in my court. And it always has been. And little by little, of course, one thing led to another, and um, it became my life's work. I mean, if you see where I started, now you can see why I have so much passion for this stuff. I would have to just give it all my energy to, to dig my way out of where I was. Uh, that's selfing. Uh, we're doing it all the time. Uh, perhaps you've done it on this retreat. Um, I had another example. Um, let me give you a... Actually, it was an interesting one. It came up, I just, it came up in group this morning. And uh, I reflected on it. And to the best of my ability, this is what I think happened. Uh, I was getting, buying tickets for a bus in Amherst, Massachusetts, for Cambridge, Boston. And as I, uh, it was online, as I get to my turn... Peter Pan bus line, the clerk somewhat shyly looks at me and says, um, I don't mean to be offensive, but um, 
do you qualify for senior citizen uh, discount? <laughs> so, you know, I looked around. You know, There was no one else in back of me. I guess he meant me. <laughs> he, and he said, you know, it's uh, $4 or something less expensive if you're uh, some age. But um, I'm happy to report I was, I'm two years away from qualifying. But what it did was, it was like a shock to be asked that. Uh, he, uh, I don't think of myself as a senior citizen. Okay. Now, some of you psychologists are saying, yeah, that's your problem. <laughs> All that looking inside has a little bit, there's a little bit more to go. Uh, those gray hairs, for example. Uh, and did you look at your birth certificate recently? Okay. I know, I, just, I turned 60, I know I'm 60. As far as I know, I'm reasonably comfortable with that. The point is, it's not in my mind all that much. But once it happened, I saw that there was a start. And there was definitely somewhat of an investment in not being a senior citizen. Uh, it wasn't painful or excruciating or anything like that, but it was definitely a shock. And it wasn't something I was crazy about entering. You know? <laughs> in that moment, there was, there was me. What got hurt, there was a little bit of hurt there. I got hurt. There was something I could feel it. You know, it was sort of like, wait a minute, I'm not a senior citizen, I'm Larry. <laughs> or another small one. Hope Corrado will forgive me. <laughs> we we ask each other about the teachings and the talks, we give each other's feedback. Um, and so I asked him about a talk, I remember a couple of evenings ago. And uh, very gently Corrado said, Well, if I had given that talk it would have been, uh, it was guided meditation or something in the morning. Uh, it would have been a little bit concise. I think it was perhaps a little bit too long. And I could feel a little arrow right in there. <laughs> so, you think I'm a blabbermouth. <laughs> We both know I am, but you don't have to remind me of it. I wanted you to say something else. It was, oh yeah, it was beautiful. It was, it was a small one, really small, and we talk, we've talked about it. But I could feel it. It was right over here. And it was another, another case where, uh, a weak one, but nonetheless, that mechanism is out of our control. Uh, me went into action. And in other words, the statement comes into the ears. Me and mine is manufactured out of the moment. That's why selfing to me is a good term for it. Every moment that we're alive, let's say just the outer world, things are coming in through the sense doors. And typically what happens is we hear things, we smell things and so forth. And they're very, very quickly experienced and felt a certain way. Vedana, if you remember that one. And then if it's nice, we want it. If it's not nice, typically we don't want it. And if there's not much awareness, it gets claimed, it becomes the property of me. Uh, and it, or it becomes materials out of which we build I. I am this and this belongs to me, something of that sort. So the words came in and I heard not concise enough and then something got hurt. 
And when I looked carefully, it was the sense of being Larry that got hurt. Probably some notion, now not as vivid as it used to be, but no doubt still there, of being someone who, who gives a very meditative kind of person, who gives instructions that are just right, not to burden you with too many words, but some words are needed, just right there. <laughs> How about you? Uh, for example, have any of you uh, found some path that's your walking path? And have you sometimes someone else turned up on it? Has there been any annoyance? Or your particular seat in the dining room? And has it ever been taken over by someone else? Uh, what uh, is being said is that from moment to moment, we human beings tend to attach to things as being me or mine. That tendency we call ignorance. We see it, it's met by what is called satipanya, mindfulness with discernment, or you could call it wisdom. When we are fully attentive, that tendency to manufacture mere mind uh, is not dangerous. When there's no satipanya, when there's no alert attentiveness, that tendency to attach to things as being me or mine can proliferate and cause immense suffering. Immense suffering. Uh, in a certain way, there's a struggle going on inside of us. It may not be conceived of as a struggle, or let's say there's an attempt to... There's two forces in us that are diametrically opposed. One is this force of constantly attaching to things as being me or mine. This is who I am. This belongs to me. Even with enemies, it's my enemy. So we're always claiming things, or even when we disclaim them, there's something so very, it's, it's very personal. And the things that come up in us, our fears, our loneliness, they're immediately claimed as being me, mine. That's my loneliness, my fear. And once that happens, we have big trouble, big suffering. And of course, a lot of what we're attempting to do here, now that's one force, the other is satipanya. And in a way, they're both uh, attempting to direct the heart as to how to live. And for most of us, perhaps all of us, overwhelmingly, me and mine is in a very powerful controlling position, deeply conditioned, deeply rooted. And to enter the path of Dharma is to more and more begin to bring, develop skills and ideas that are helping us to see how we actually suffer. That finally the root of the suffering is this attachment. When we self, when we, do, when we make self from moment to moment. Now if you look carefully, as I hope you do throughout through this retreat, we're not always selfing throughout a typical day. There are moments when we're not doing it, sometimes quite naturally. We just feel happy, and there is no claiming of this, that, or the other, and in part that's why we're so happy. And it can happen spontaneously, but you can't count on that. Or in deep sleep, finally, even the dreams, because in dreams there's also me or mine, right? You're being eaten by a tiger. Uh, <laughs> it's not all that different. If you could laugh at that, see if you can laugh at your fear. It's a dream in daylight. It's manufactured out of the mind. Something happened 
50 years ago, 25 years ago, and it comes in and we attach to it and believe in it, and then where are we? But there's a period of sleep where even the dreams fall away and we have a few hours, fortunately, or we'd probably be insane, where there's, there's no dreaming. Dreamless sleep. And we all need a certain amount of that. Uh, so then we get up and the first thing, you get up in the morning, it's not too, one of the first things or the first thing, I am tired, cold, uh, at IMS, don't want to go to, what we keep adding on to that. And before you know it, Throughout the day, the mind keeps grasping onto things. This is happening to me. This belongs to me. And we're using everything that comes in through the sense doors and from inside. Thought is also a sense door. Now, looked at from the point of view of our practice, let's say the, the shamatha practice that we've been doing, when you're really with the breathing, fully with the breathing, uh, is there any me or mind there? What I, one thing I'd like to suggest is that you've already tasted selflessness. You've already tasted it. You've already tasted moments of emptiness. It may not have the depth or the continuity of what's possible, but we've all had instances of it already in life. And certainly on a retreat you've had it, maybe five seconds, where you're just fully experiencing an in-breath and the out-breath, and in that moment there's... Uh, no idea, there's no mental function that is objectifying yourself as being the one who is doing the breathing. There's no breather. You could say our fundamental koan is who's breathing. If you can find out who's breathing, let me know. I've been looking for a long time. There's no question that we're breathing, but I've been unable to find out who's doing it. If you have better luck, let me know. Now, there's no question that something in the mind says, well, of course, I'm breathing. Well, what is that? I am seems to me it's like an idea, a word. A very dangerous one when we believe in it. So that even in the shamatha practice, when it's strictly speaking not even vipassana yet, when we're very, very concentrated and we're resting in the breathing, totally uh, at home or in the breath, in that moment, when it's really calm and peaceful, there's no room for that self-preoccupation. And then perhaps we feel some peace come out of the concentration. And then, isn't it very common, within a few moments, something jumps out and claims it and then kind of spoils it. Oh, look how peaceful I am. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. And then, before you know it, the peace is gone because you're celebrating, the ego is celebrating how great it is that it's just done. It takes credit for everything. Just so we don't get confused, when we use terms like selfless, some people feel that means, well, if I just give all my possessions away, does that mean that I've attained uh, ultimate emptiness? No. It's uh, because, for example, in our tradition, dana is used as a practice. Dana is uh, giving, giving in a way to help weaken the attachment we have to me or mine, because we give money or other things that uh, that, that perhaps are important to us, that we need. And so in one sense that is working in the direction that we're talking about. But it is possible to give enormous amounts of money, objects, everything away. And Corrado gave me a phrase, an Italian what, folk saying, it's like with, with uh, the ego, you 
open the front door and chase it out and it comes in through the window. It comes right back and there it is as the most benevolent benefactor who ever lived. Uh, this very, very generous person who's donating money for hungry children, for hungry yogis, for whoever it is. <laughs> and so we've taken it away and with a sleight of hand given it right back to ourselves. Because now there's something that has claimed this generosity as being my generosity. And the benefits that I might get, you know, the punya that'll come in the next lifetime, it's a business deal when we do it that way. <laughs> That's not it. So in the real dana, there's no attachment to me or mine. There are no strings attached. When we more and more begin to see into this attachment to me or mine and it loses its uh, toxic ability or it even isn't even there for extended periods of time, sila, or the ability to behave in an ethically sensitive way, is of course enhanced dramatically because who are we getting in trouble for with all of our misdemeanors and we break the, the precepts. It's in the service of me. We work for me and mine. Why do we lie and steal? Who's that for? So it very much affects that. It affects even concentration. In real concentration, real samadhi, sama samadhi, uh, there's no mere mine in those moments. Now it's not eradicated, but it's not there temporarily. It's in abeyance. But in those moments there's a feeling, a kind of a beginning taste a foretaste of uh, what it's like to not be plagued by being so preoccupied with how we're doing and who we are and what we own or don't own. And then when we get to wisdom itself, our practice is sila, samadhi, panya. Panya is satipanya, that is, when there's really clear seeing of the way things are, and the way things are that me and mine are not self. But this has to be seen, it's not an ideology. That itself is the essence of wisdom. In our tradition, nirvana is when there's, uh, there's absolutely no mere mind. That's gone. Or if you take the ways in which it's talked about in other traditions, pure mind or original mind, there's no mere mind. There's no attachment to mere mind in original mind. Of course, if there were, what would be this? Why we, what's the point of being there? We're already in a place where we're being plagued by wanting this and wanting that, hating this and hating that. For whom? So, as we start to practice, I am certain that everyone in this room has had moments when you've been really into it. And in those moments, me or mine is not operative. Now, uh, when awareness is really working, when you're seeing the arising and passing away, uh, when you're seeing breath come in and out, when you're closely examining fear, if you're really fully attending to fear, uh, there's no question that it's not my fear, it's that there is fear. And then if you lose concentration for a second, two seconds, me and mine comes pouring right into that window and claims it, and then it's my fear again, and then we have big problems. But wisdom can see that. Wisdom can see that that is a, a thought process. That's mental culture at work, which is appropriating something that's happening. What is happening is the mind-body process. And this process is constantly appropriated, claimed, grasped onto. 
And what we grasp onto is the huge burden that we carry in life. If you didn't get into Harvard, you have the burden of not getting into Harvard. If you did, you have the burden of having gotten into Harvard. They're all the same. Let me just leave you with this thought for you to reflect on a bit, but see what comes out of your practice. If when there's clear seeing, uh, part of why it feels so good when you're seeing clearly is that even if it's just for a brief period of time, uh, there isn't that problematic, confused state, vexation, turmoil, of when we get involved in it, when it becomes something about me. The Buddha at one point says that birth is suffering. And one interpretation, of course, one is the obvious meaning, that is if you're born, that means if there's a body, then you're now subject to suffering. If you have a body, now you're, suffering, you're subject to all the things that can happen to a body. But there's another meaning. Uh, this is the one that Ajahn Buddha Dasa teaches. And we don't have to struggle as to whether he's right or other people are right. It's useful. What he is, what he is saying is that a much deeper meaning is it's the birth of ego. Every time ego is born, we, what is born is suffering. And ego is born hundreds, perhaps thousands of times a day. And so sometimes we're born as somebody who just got into Harvard or we're born as somebody who's a street person with no, no money, and no, no place to live. Sometimes we're born as a yogi. But each time when we create notions about ourselves, when we make yogi, street person, etc., in that moment we've given birth. We've given birth to a mental construction which tells us who it is that we are to ourselves and often to others through the way we present ourselves and speak and dress and so forth. Wisdom is cutting through all of that. Cutting through all the clouds, me and mine and all the derivatives of me and mine, coming to the pure, clear sky. Could we have a a moment or or so of quiet? This talk was given by Larry Rosenberg at Insight Meditation Society on July 14, 1993. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.